Hey, welcome. I'm John, and I know there's some new people, so let me lay the ground rules for us in an interactive forum. The idea of Exodus is we interact together, one-on-one -on -one with each other, as we study God's Word or whatever topic we're going to take on. And the beauty of it is you're allowed to stop at any time, raise your hand, stop the discussion, ask a question, disagree, debate what I'm about to do, tell me you're bothered by it. All of that is fair game because that's how we learn in here. We learn by interacting with one another. This is not a one-way dialogue. It's not a sermon. We're really meaning to bring you into it because of our belief that the Holy Spirit speaks through every single person in the room. Uh, and if you stay silent and you're itching to say something, it could be the Spirit. And as you see tonight, you don't want to mess with the Spirit. You'll see. <laughs> Last week, we kind of did our vision casting for the whole year and we laid down the groundwork for what we're going to be doing. So I said that it's part of our habit to do a Stewardship Sunday at the beginning of the year after we kind of cast our vision for the year. So here's the disclaimer for tonight. This might bug you a little bit tonight. And if it does, that's okay. If you feel a little bit uncomfortable today, especially if you're just checking us out for the first time, that's okay too. Uh, you can express it. You can feel it. But I want to tell you that I think tonight's passage is one of the most difficult ones to deal with in Scripture. And as I said before... Last week when we were kind of highlighting what we were going to talk about tonight, I have yet to hear a talk on stewardship and giving that dives right into the story of Ananias and Sapphira. So instead of calling it Stewardship Sunday, we're changing it this, this year to Ananias and Sapphira Sunday, all right? <laughs> I would love it if a church would just announce to their congregation it's Ananias and Sapphira Sunday. We're going to celebrate that. And I haven't seen it, so of course, if I haven't seen it, we got to start here, you know? Why not set the example of how to use Ananias and Sapphira as a story about giving? But I want to be careful, because this story is not really just about giving. It's really about the attitude with which the gift is given. It's about the manner in which we approach each other in community and as part of the church, which are the same thing. If you're part of this community this little community called Exodus, or you're just part of the body of Christ. We are one unified body under one head, Christ. And we've been talking a lot about unity as we've walked through our series on Ephesians. That's, that theme just comes out over and over. And here tonight we're going to see the story of Ananias and Sapphira as it relates to how it disrupts unity and also just the kind of daring nature of taking on a holy God in community and kind of shrugging your shoulders at his requirements. Let me set the stage a little bit. A year ago, we did a series on stewardship. We've actually done a lot of talking about money. If you've been around me for a while, you know that one topic I don't shy away from is money and giving. On our website, there must be at least eight or nine talks just about money and giving. And last year, we updated our series by doing, uh, right around this time, our stewardship update. And if you missed that, there's two podcasts, I believe, on the website under the topic of stewardship. And it's called Stewardship, an Update to Our Money Talk. And you can check those out because we focused on a couple themes. And I'm not going to pick up on them. I'm just going to remind you of what they are. One of those themes was the cost of being a disciple. We used actually that part of scripture where Jesus is explaining, consider the cost of being my disciple. And he goes on to tell the parable of the tower. And if you remember, that's where he says, consider first whether you have what it takes money-wise, to build the tower before you begin to build. Otherwise, everyone will see you and ridicule you and say, look, 
this fellow began to build but was unable to do so. And we talked about how you'd be constructing a monument of shame, a monument to your own failure, a monument to your own miscalculation of how much you really were going to put into this project and how much you had. Jesus speaks very clearly about make sure if you want to follow me, you have what it takes. Yes, money-wise. That parable ends with these striking words, Luke 14.33, which I said last year was probably among the most shocking phrases in Scripture, and I think it still stands. It says, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciple. And so when we come to a topic about giving, I normally like to dispel the idea always that we're starting with some sort of negotiation with God of it. How much is it that you think I should be giving? Because Jesus' answer is direct and it's straight to the point. If you do not give up everything, everything you have, you cannot be my disciple. The puzzle, of course, is how do I give up everything and continue to live? And that's what we go on in that series to talk about. How do we hold everything with open hands to God and yet still steward it to be productive, to do things for the kingdom, to live, to eat, to share? So if that strikes you a little bit, go back and listen to those two because that's the place that we started and tonight we kind of pick up a little bit from there. So let's go to Acts. I'm going to start at the end of chapter 4. Here's the picture that's painted for us in the book of Acts as this early church's beginning following on these stark words of Jesus. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. See that word everything again? That's the model and the picture of the church at the beginning. They shared everything they had. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there was no needy person among them. Let me stop there for a second as well. You ever struggle with the number of needy people there are in the world? You ever struggle with the number of needy that you think that maybe there's a, there's a claim that we could make against God and say, I don't really get how you can allow so much neediness, so much poverty, so much abject misery. And the question that we ask and its answer is far more complicated than my simple little answer right now will give. But one of the answers to that cry is the fact that we withhold from others the very things that we've been given that we're supposed to give everything to. Look at the connection here. There were no needy persons among them. Why? It says why. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. That's why. That's why there was no need in the community. Think of it in the context of this small community here. If we took seriously enough that people in this community or people around us that we know about had need to the point that we sold what we had and brought it and said, distribute this to those people who have need. That's exactly what's going on here. That's exactly the idea that's being discussed. And this was not a new concept, by the way. 
in a way, this is kind of a fulfillment of something that God had said his people would have the ability to do long before this day ever came. I want to take you all the way back to Deuteronomy 15 for a second. Because there's another one of these shocking statements that we often skip over in Deuteronomy 15. The Lord has brought them out of Egypt in the Exodus. He's brought them across the land and he's finally going to give them the promised land. He's laying down the law to them. He's even dividing up the land and telling them about the Jubilee and the cancellation of debts every seven years. There's a lot of context here. But there's one statement he makes in the midst of all these commandments about money, about forgiveness of debt, about freeing slaves, about practicing the Jubilee. He says... There will be no poor among you. There should be no poor among you. This translation says there need be no poor among you. How is it possible? Jesus says the poor will always be with you. In fact, as you go down later, even in these verses, it says the same thing in Deuteronomy 15. It's not that the the condition of poverty is unknown to God. It's not that he doesn't know that there's going to be poor people It goes on to say it even in Deuteronomy 15, but look, there should be no poor people among you. Why? For in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess, he will richly bless you. If only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all the commands I'm giving you today. What commands? The ones about forgiveness of debt, the ones about sharing of wealth, the ones about not being tight-fisted, the ones about giving to your neighbor without asking for return, all of the commandments that he's giving, he's saying, there won't be any poor people. Why? Because I'm the Lord and I'll bless you. And all you need to do is follow my command. I will give you everything you need. And what do you need to do? You need to share it with everybody else. You just need to do what I'm commanding you to do. Share. Forgive debts. Cancel debts. Free slaves. Do all the things I'm telling you to do, and there doesn't need to be any poor among you. What's the opposite mean? When we don't do those things, the poor remain poor, and they remain with us. So if you go back to the church in Acts chapter 4, infused with this power, infused with the power of the resurrection, testifying about Jesus, fully aware of the Spirit and the Spirit's movement, they're meeting the needs Because people are finally fulfilling what God had told his people to do. They're giving up everything they have. And they're sharing it. And everyone's needs are met. Here's an example. Luke, as he's writing in Acts, in a historical record, he says, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Just stop there for a moment. How does that make you feel? Is Jesus' words in Luke asking too much for us to give up everything? Is it crazy to think that God could see that there be no poor in our midst if we took care of them? Yeah. I think the example here would be pretty difficult to do. I I would say my parents, right? They have a condo. It would be really interesting to think of them taking that condo and saying, and we have a renter, but, you know, kicking them out and selling it and giving money away, like, that'd be pretty, a pretty amazing thing to do, so. If you inherited that, is that something you would do? <laughs> that wouldn't be my first time, probably not, you know, like. <laughs> All right. I know you're probably thinking right now, like, I don't even have anything to sell. I have nothing, right? 
I'm even in debt, right? So that just lets me off the hook, right? Because as I read Luke 14.33, it says, he who does not give up everything cannot be my disciple. And then there's a comma. It says, unless you're in school in debt, right? Is this, that's what the comma says, right? Or it says, like, unless you don't actually own anything or unless you've been, like, you know, sitting around not really producing anything, right? There's, I don't see anything. There's just a period there. It seems to apply to everyone. So, of course, all of us are in different places when we talk about everything. And you notice that, obviously, there were people in this community who couldn't do that because the people who could had this land. And if you want to look sociologically back at this time, you'd say, yeah, most people probably owned the house they lived in. Uh, they probably didn't have a mortgage. So if they had land, it was probably land that was outside somewhere in the city. It was worth something. They weren't selling the very house they lived in, most likely. They were selling whatever lands they had inherited or whatever lands maybe they were even working for profit and laying it at the disciples' feet. Okay. So let's look at an example of somebody different. Now, a man named Ananias together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not just lied to human beings, but to God. He kept back part of the money. The word that's used there in Greek for kept back harkens to another word that's used in the Septuagint, translating the Old Testament. In the story of Joshua and the sin of Achan, anyone remember what the sin of Achan is? Achan was the guy who was told, along with all the other Israelites, when you're defeating this enemy, don't take any of the plunder for yourself. And what did he do? He found a robe that he liked. He liked, found some silver that he liked, some gold that he liked. And he hid them in the tent underneath his dwelling. And in the next battle, Israel thinks they're just going to rout the enemy because there's only a few people there. They take out 3,000 people against just a few, and they're actually defeated. And Joshua sits in front of the Lord and goes, how is it that we could be defeated? What is going on here? And the short answer is God says, march them by one by one, all of the tribes, all of the families, and you will know the person who's broken my law. And it comes down to Achan. The Lord tells Joshua, that's the guy. And he says to Achan, what have you done? Tell us what you've done. And Achan confesses that he's kept this in his tent. And the punishment for him for doing this, according to Joshua, is death. So this story, even as Luke is reciting it in Acts, harkens back to the same kind of concept. He must surely have been aware of it. But I think there's a little bit of a difference. Let's move on and see what happens. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? 
Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Here's one of the most obvious statements in the New Testament. <laughs> Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. What do you think of that? If I'm telling you this story and I'm telling you this is, this is the way I want you to come into the church, you've got to hear what happened last week. We had these people and they sold their field and they brought probably like half the money and they put it at the apostles' feet and the apostles were like, not good enough, and they both died. <laughs> you guys ready to join? What do you think? Was the problem that they told them that like this is all the money we got for the land? I mean, or is that they didn't give it all? What do you think the problem is? I mean, because like if they sold their land and they give most of the money to God, like you think that would still be a good thing, right? Unless they told them, oh no, this is all that we got, then that's another story. They're lying. But... Can you imagine in today's church? I just want you to think about today's church, the church we live in today in America. If you lived in a church today and you had a piece of property somewhere here and you sold it and you took half that money and you went to the church and you said, here is half the money that I made. Or you don't even say anything. Oh, I go, here's a donation to the church of whatever, $150,000, $200,000, much you get for half that land. They'd make you an elder, right? <laughs> You'd probably get like a parking spot, like right next to the church administrator or something else, right? How is it that these people get the death penalty for doing exactly the same thing? So it must be something to your question. Yeah. Um, well, I have a question also. Do you think it's the, like the Holy Spirit was a part of that decision for them to sell the land and the Holy Spirit was communicating to them like how much he wanted or God wanted them to get away and then they were disobedient and God's trying to teach a lesson there about listening to the Holy Spirit and being obedient? Well, I think he's definitely trying to teach a lesson. The question is, and I'm going to leave your question open, are they being disobedient to the Holy Spirit because they heard to do this and they didn't? So that's one possibility. Anyone else? Yeah. I think it comes back to them lying about it and withholding money and saying this was all of it. I mean, like, if you look at it, you can see Peter saying, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied? And that concept of the lie comes up a number of places. So... Did he verbally lie? Do you think he came forward and said, this is everything? Yeah. It was a premeditated part on Ananias and Sapphira's part. I mean, they, she was fully aware of what he was doing. He was holding it back. There was a, a premeditated disobedience toward what God has asked them to do. And making that jump into a disobedient act, not the giving. Okay. So it's not really about the giving. It's about the disobedience, you're saying, and the lie. Yeah? Yeah, to me, referencing back to Joshua, it almost gives it an air of, like, it was stolen. Like, there's something about this money that's tainted. There was a knowledge on Ananias' part that he, this was intended for something else, and he directly, I don't think he was innocent at all. Like, I don't think it was any sort of, it seems almost like the story for us, it's hard to say, but it seems like, 
you give everything except what you need to live, and if there's something if you have any other intention for it besides living, if you're planning on doing something, because we don't know what Ananias was planning on doing with this money, if you have any intentions for it besides what you need to continue living, then it seems like Ananias seems to know that and disobey anyway. Okay, yeah. I was thinking that it sounds like they didn't have much trust because if the whole church is being cared for, um, why would they keep the money back for themselves to care for themselves? So if they gave everything, um, then they would have been trusting that the church would have provided for them as well. There's certainly a mistrust of God here. There's clearly, because if you see the pattern, people sell their properties, they deposit at the apostles' feet, and everyone's needs are met. So somewhere they're thinking, hmm, well, maybe we'll get soup, but I'm not thinking of living that way. Like, I want to live like the way I want to live. So there's a little bit of a mistrust and probably a little bit of greed. Yeah. I wonder if there's some sort of, like, arrogance or showiness. Like, I'm reminded of the uh, Sermon on the Mount, like, give, keep your giving in secret. And so the reason I'm reminded of that, maybe there was an understanding that if, like in Chapter 4, you were bringing your money to the apostles' feet, it was assumed that is actually all of it, as opposed to say, I mean, everyone's giving donations. I mean, most people are not giving. I mean, there are rich benefactors. There are most people who can't do that. So there's got to be something maybe there where they're getting accolades, they're getting acknowledgement, and yet they've kept large parts of it back, and maybe that's the real sin there. I don't know. That's kind of stab I have. Yeah, I definitely agree with that, because I don't think it's a coincidence that we see in Chapter 4, the end of it, saying this man who actually did this, and then all of a sudden the Ananias is like, very key to understanding how to read scripture. It's not an accident that chapter 4 ends and chapter 5 begins because Luke doesn't have chapters. We added them, right? So sometimes when we're reading scripture, the numbers screw us up. I mean, I would like us some time to read a book without the verse markings and without the chapter markings so that we can see how thoughts connect rather than how chapters just stop. Because in our mind, like chapters over, we go, oh, okay, let's start a new chapter, right? But in this case, there's no new chapter. It just goes right in. And it's also not an accident that they came forward, but even more precisely to say, it's not an accident that Luke arranges these two stories right next to each other. Because he's just finished saying how everyone laid all these things and there's great power in the church and great things are going on. And then he decides to give two examples as evidence. He's a historian. He's saying one example is Barnabas, who did this. And another example is Ananias and Sapphira, who did exactly the opposite. The tension teaches us. But you're right that even from just reading the story as a narrative, it's not an accident that they know the practice it's been described in summary. They see a specific example of the practice, Barnabas, who gets this cool name, because his name is Joseph, right? But then he gets a cool name like Barnabas. So they're thinking, maybe I'll get a cool name. I never really liked Ananias anyway, you know? Or Sapphira, like maybe they'll give me Ken and Barbie or something really cool, right? But what happens is they actually may be doing exactly that thing that you and Morgan are hinting at, which is coming forward in pride. And the lie may never have been spoken. They may never have said, hey, I sold a field and this is all I got. Because everybody knew that when you sold a field and you came to the apostles and you laid it at their feet, which is a sign of surrender, a sign of you deal with this for the community, it's showing even their authority to 
disperse it as they saw fit. They didn't need to lie. They didn't need to say anything because everybody knew if somebody had just sold a field and brought the money, they're bringing everything because they're now going to receive the thanksgiving of the community and maybe even the recognition. You know, maybe they get a parking spot. Because notice what Peter says here. He's quizzing him and he says, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? You didn't have to bring it and lay it at our feet. You could have just sold it and spent it or do anything you want. But what you did was mimic the act of giving everything. But you didn't give everything. You held something back. And if you hear one thing I say tonight, it's that last sentence. We mimic giving everything. And we hold back so much. If the standard of being a disciple is to give up everything, then we in this room, for the most part, it's a generality, I don't know every situation, but we're mimickers of giving up everything. And that was the lie that Ananias and Sapphira conspired in their heart to tell. They were going to look like they gave everything. And the penalty is harsh. Does the penalty bug you? It's just a lie. Can you imagine if that was the current standard? And why isn't it the standard in other places? Why is it just these people? And this is something we should spend a moment on. This is a harsh example. When we see this, we think, okay, let's get this straight. No chance to repent. No chance to say, all right, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, or have any kind of chance to say, come back. I mean, there's just death instantly. So people have tried to shake this story down in a lot of ways to understand, first, can we explain it away? Like, was it a heart attack? Were they just, it wasn't God striking them down. It was just they were so scared at what they'd done, they both had heart attacks. Some people have said that's probably true in some way. Maybe that's the physical way in which they died. But I think it would soften the story too much to take away the fact that Peter makes it clear that you've lied to the Holy Spirit, and that's the reason that you're going to drop dead right now. But it still bothers us because we think, well, I've lied many, many times, and I'm still here. So why these people? I think it was an example. I think it's to remind us what kind of God we serve. I think it's not to just remind us, by the way. We're the beneficiaries of Luke's written account so that we can remember. It's to tell the church at that time what kind of God they serve. We kind of keep that God hidden away for very special sermons. <laughs> You know, like Aaron's sons who kind of worshipped a little bit the wrong way and then they just got struck down, right? And they died. And you're like, I don't understand. Yes? And I think to some degree we keep that God in the Old Testament. We don't even bring this part of it up for the most part. Yeah, we're like, hey, wait a minute. But this is, now it's a new covenant and grace and love and it's the same God. In fact, all of this, this whole story harkens back to that same God who said, this is the way you're going to be. My people are going to live by this standard. I think rather than saying, how is it that just because they lied, they were struck down dead, we actually should be asking, thank God that you have not struck me down. 
and that you have grace and mercy and that you withhold your hand and that you give us chance after chance. But there really is the time to say, I think this was set up to the early church to say, take this very seriously, especially at its earliest beginnings. Yes? I was going to say, one of the theories I've heard to this is that um, they committed the unforgivable sin that Jesus speaks about, blessing of the Holy Spirit. They thought they were smarter than the, spirits, the Holy Spirit and the apostles. But, I mean, it kind of gets to that argument about, like, words. You know what I mean? Like, these words could be completely different originally written to our understanding. Yeah, I think that I, I heard that, and I actually think the reason that I didn't buy that idea so much is because I, there's no indication here that they were, like, damned forever, right? They died. I mean, they met their death immediately. I don't know where they were in the community before that, and that isn't given to us. Like, maybe they were full-on members of the community and totally understood who Christ was, and they were unified in Christ, and still the purpose that God had for them was to be this example. Uh, or we forget the seriousness of dealing with the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit's kind of the third guy that we don't talk about much. Like, we're not really sure what he does. And, but, but he helps us write songs, though. That's cool, you know. <laughs> right? That's, always, that's the only time I usually hear, like, or when you need to figure out who to marry or, you know. So, I mean, those are the, those are the real hard times that we're seeking the Spirit. And I don't think that we have a good understanding and we have sp did a series where we tried to understand better the role of the Spirit, but we're constantly reminded, as you bring up, that Jesus says, don't blaspheme the Holy Spirit because that's not forgivable. That should give us pause as to what that means. But either way here, lying to the Spirit uh, in this way leads to death. I don't think, though, that it means that any time you lie to the Spirit, you will die. I think that it means that if you lie to the Spirit, <laughs> you should die. But that God, through his mercy and his grace, doesn't do this very often. But I think he does it here as a reminder to the early church first, not just to us sitting here. We're fortunate to keep remembering this. Monique? I think it's also like a really good reminder that like above all, God is holy because we always want to put him in like, you're my best friend box. And like we take grace for granted. And I think this kind of shows to not take that grace for granted. Same thing when the bottle of perfume was broken on Christ's feet. The point was that God is holy. He's holier than what you want to do with it for the money, which kind of goes back to this. Um, to be thankful, like you said, that we're not dying because we deserve to die for our sins and not to take for granted. Like, yeah, those people died for lying. Christ died for us and did nothing. So it's like, don't take that for granted, I think. 100%. That's the God we serve. Before we leave the slide, let's make it clear, though. It was their money. They could have done with it what they want. The grave sin here, the lie itself, was coming and pretending they were giving up everything. That's why I ask us tonight to think, how often are we pretending that we're living the life of a disciple and yet secretly hanging on to the things and not wanting to give them up? One other thing I want to move back to this. There's an issue here that people bring up and say, um, how is it that three hours later Sapphira could come in They've already buried her husband and she doesn't even know. Like, you know, that would be weird under the customs. And I've heard all sort of contorted explanations by all sorts of, you know, commentators on this about all the like, well, you know, it's possible that because it was so grave, they put him in the ground right away. I didn't read this in any commentary, but I got to tell you that my opinion is just take it with, a, with a, like thousand grains of salt. <laughs> I'm not a biblical scholar. But my opinion is, 
it's often the case in the New Testament that things are not exactly chronological, right? So it's probably true that she came in after three hours. That's specifically stated. But I don't know that they weren't, like, that the burial had already taken place. But that's just my opinion. I mean, all these other people are talking about, well, he, they buried him really fast because they had to. It was a hot day. He was already decomposing. I was like, you're like, you got to go. <laughs> wow. Like, I was like, so God can strike people down, and you're worried about, like, what the timing was. You know? But anyway... I think that it, 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 is, it should give us some pause. It seems a little strange in the story, but I actually think that the greater point may be that you know he died and they carried him out and then she came in and she told the same line, she died, and that may be the way it comes out, yeah. I just had a question, like it just popped in my head, like I wonder if today, even though we might not experience the death like they did for being disobedient to the spirit, if we might experience something else that would be an act of, I don't know how that map matches up with God's character, or how we know God's character, but would he maybe judge us in another way, and you know what I'm saying? Even as believers. Right, like, he may not cause us to drop down and die right now, but would he cause something else as a consequence? Sure, because first I think there's always consequence to our sin. Whether it has eternal significance or not is a different story, right? So if, if I wrong you, there is a consequence, even though I'm not struck dead for doing that, even though I'm breaking the unity of our community. So there is a consequence, and we'll deal with it. In fact, the whole community could fall apart because of this situation. And God hasn't struck either of us down, right? So the first, the consequence sometimes, in fact, most times, remains. But I do believe that also, in another sense, God will bring judgment even to believers. And that will somehow affect the quality and the, maybe the station of our eternal life somehow. And there's a lot of debate over how that works out, but there's clearly in Scripture, several places, judgment for believers. It's just not a judgment of salvation, it's a judgment of something else. And that may happen in this life, and it may happen in the next, because I don't know that there's like this guarantee that like, well, we'll just sort it out later. For some people, that does happen now. Yeah, and I think that that also causes me to have this kind of fear of God. Like, I really want to be listening to God so that I know how to be obedient. Yeah, one thing our church needs a lot more of, and I mean the church-wide, is a fear of God. I mean, it was really a good thing in some ways that over the last few hundred years, we've made him much more personal to us and understood that part. And I think that's biblical. Like Jesus says, I call you friends now, right? Because you know me. <laughs> but there's all these other verses that talk about the fear of the Lord. And maybe understanding him in this context is helpful to us because we have gotten a little too chummy sometimes for our own good. It's good to know Jesus in a personal way if that builds a relationship of love between us and the maker, although we will never be anywhere near the plane that he's on. But if that chumminess leads us to become kind of nonchalant about sin, nonchalant about his mandates, his dictates, the things that he cares about, the holy God that he is, the way that we're supposed to be as disciples, even in this context, if we just kind of shrug our shoulders about giving and go, eh, I don't think he really means all that. And besides, whatever, I'll get around to it someday. Like, then I think that is not serving us well to have, have lost that fear of God. And I think that's why maybe this example was given. You know, here's an example of somebody that was good. And here's an example that made everybody in the whole church, as I said, one of the most obvious statements, great fear seized the whole church. Like, you think? <laughs> like, and also kind of to add sort of to what you're talking about, 
I think just like how a good seed that you plant in someone, you never know how far that might go or like what the Spirit does with that. I think we underestimate what our sin can do, and we think our sin is so individual, but I really think there's like a bigger picture, and I think our sin is communal, and if I'm disobedient to God myself, I think that affects the whole community and all of God's kingdom, and if he wants me to go do something and I don't, not that I can thwart his like sovereignty, but that's going to affect like things in the kingdom, and so I think even our small sins, like if it affects our hearts, or starts to kill our own spirituality, that's one less effective person in the kingdom, or we don't know how many people we hurt, or we just can't see that. So I think it's bigger than what we think it is. And so we're like, oh, it's just a lie. Why were they killed? I mean, I think it really is bigger. Besides the fact that God is holy above everything, there's the other issue, too, is that you don't know where it will. Well, Paul's key metaphor that he uses over and over is the body. The idea is if you bring infection into your body, it affects the body. So when we bring that kind of sin, even though we think it's confined into our own cells, right? But we're part of the body. So we're bringing that into the body, right? I mean, like, who would take Christ and lay him down in sin in this way? Because he's talking about the corporal body of Christ. And to him, yes, it's an, a useful analogy or metaphor, but it's more than that. Because he's saying that we are one in Christ so we're bringing that stuff into, it's more than just the community. Thank God for his cleansing ability to get rid of that, yeah. And I mean, Paul wasn't, I feel like Paul was referencing back to the Old Testament and going back to the fact that it's the same God in the New Testament, the very definition of who God is in Deuteronomy talks about, I am God of God, full of love and slow to anger, but the sin of the Father will pass on to the sons and it will go on for generations and generations. I think we do tend to underestimate the power of sin. I mean, that's an ancient Jewish belief. All of temple law is based on this idea that sin contaminates the community, and you have to try and prevent that. So um, it's very prevalent through all the Old Testament that it affects the entire community. We have to deal with it or seek atonement for it, which was part of the Jewish practice that Jesus then finally fulfills. Go ahead. Um, I have a question about the part where Peter asks Ananias um, if the money was not at his disposal. So is Peter suggesting that it would have been better for him just to have kept the money? I mean, it seems like it's this like all or nothing equation, which is hard. I think what he's saying is nothing or lying. It'd be better to give nothing. So it's not an all or nothing, like I want it all or don't give me any part of it. Because I think that if Ananias had taken half of the money and gone to the apostles and said, I sold a field for $100,000 or shekels or denarius or whatever it was, and here's 50,000. I'm keeping the other 50. He would have been truthful. Somebody might have said, Ananias, what has gripped your heart that you're holding back from the community? Just the way that I would say that to people in here. Um, what has gripped you people that we give so tight-fistedly to God? But none of you has stood up and said, I'm giving everything I got. Although I think impliedly we do and we say we're disciples. It's a side point. But the answer to your question directly is, I, mean, I think Jesus wants all, but Peter is giving him the, the way to say, you could have done with it anything you wanted to, including been honest, and said, I kept some, but I'm giving you some. And I think that would have been different. It's because he was silent and tried to look like Barnabas and everybody else would follow that pattern of, hey guys, I sold a field and I laid the money. And the way I get that, just if I can go all the way back, is I think when he's questioning Sapphira, he says, is this the price? And the grammar, the way it's construed, he's actually talking about a definitive this. 
is this the total? And she said, it is. And then she dies as well, right? So if, they, if she had said, no, that's half of what we sold, I think he would have said, all right, we got some issues to work on, but you didn't lie the way that your husband did, pretending and wanting the accolades that come with being one of those field sellers and getting all the stuff, okay? Yes? My question is then sort of what, is, what does this mean to us? What are we supposed to take from this? Let's go there. The first step in some application is I think we need a discipline of deciding what to give. It's a discipline we have to have. It doesn't work practically or even in this scriptural sense that just somehow while I'm standing there singing a song, the Spirit's going to come on me and go, 20 bucks! And I'm going to reach into my pocket and take out money and put that in, right? Um, I used to be a little bit kind of superstitious that way. I don't know what you'd call that kind of, you know. And I'd be singing worship in a church. No, this is a real story. And, and every single time, I'd feel the Lord going, give everything you have in your pocket. <laughs> you know, you guys feel that way? Like, just give it all. And I'd reach in there and it'd be like three bucks. I'd be like, <laughs> you know, and I'd throw the three bucks in, you know. And there'd be other times where like, there'd be like, you know, like four twenties kind of all crisp and new in there. And I'd be like, he doesn't really mean it though, this Sunday. <laughs> like, I got to stop listening to these voices in my head, you know. Both of those are really, I don't believe, mature or biblical in understanding the way we're supposed to give. First, the standard is everything. So there isn't this like, I'm waiting to hear from you directly to tell me exactly what I'm going to do with giving. Jesus spends painstaking detail talking about consider the cost before you start becoming a disciple. Do you have what it takes? Are you going to finish the tower? He says calculate the cost and figure out if you have what it takes. So you need the discipline of deciding. You need to sit down. And actually, what I'm saying tonight as a practical sense is that's what we're going to do in Exodus this year. Is rather than just say, hey, when you feel moved, put money in the back in that red box, I'm going to ask you to decide. Read 2 Corinthians with me for a second. Chapter 9 says, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will reap generously. I always pause there and say this is not a prosperity gospel issue. This is Paul saying if you want to make a big impact in the world, then you need to give generously. And if you want to make a very little impact or no impact, then don't give anything. But here's the key line I'm taking away tonight. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion or under fear that you're going to be struck down dead. <laughs> For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. So I want you to start thinking tonight about deciding what you're going to give. Now, I should say a word practically about that red box back there. All the money that we collect in Exodus doesn't go to run Exodus. It goes to the various charities that we support, the various ministries that we support. We don't take anything for Exodus. And you may be giving somewhere else, and that's fine. We're going to talk about that as well. But if you're not giving anywhere, the reason we have that red box is it gives you a place to give. And if you're struggling with that, there's a million ways and resources I can give you, including some of our previous talks and some things. But decide what you're going to give. The second discipline I'm asking you to look at is the discipline of pledging that amount. Deciding it between you and God and saying, what should I give? You've asked me for everything. I'm a steward of everything you have. How much do I practically give of the money that God has given me? 
to steward for him. It's not ours. We're just possessors of everything. Everything belongs to the Lord. The discipline of pledging an amount. And then the discipline of accountability. So you said, how does this really work practically? I'm going to pass these out. And I don't expect you to fill them out now. I just want you to have them and look at them. So take one of these. Just give them to people around you. Here's what this says. It's very simple. In the discipline of deciding what to give, the first one says, I'm pledging to give this much to Exodus this year. And it actually, by the way, it says intentionally through Exodus. Because you're not giving to Exodus. We don't, it's not ours. We give it right back to the Lord. But through some place that you have a structured place to give, pledge a certain amount. The second thing is, you could say, no, I'm already committed to give, and I'd actually like you as a measure of accountability to say where. Like, no, I, I'm not giving here. I'm giving through my church. Great, just write that down. As a measure of accountability, being honest before God, remembering the penalty. Or third, you could just circle, I'm not ready to commit to giving at this point in my life. I'm just not there. And being honest about that, because I think that too often we hem and haw, and I think it really comes down to a choice. You know, giving, it's really simple. You either do or you don't. The amounts might vary. But I'm not even focusing tonight on that, because I think for some of us, you know, some of us have a good discipline of giving. Some of us need to do better, but some of us just need to make the first step. And then I want you to write your name down. And the reason I'm asking for your name is I know that we're always talking about giving in anonymity and it will be anonymous. I'm asking you to write your name down in accountability because one of the things that I think hurts our churches so much is that we never actually have any kind of accountability to say, yes, I feel like I'm giving this much and have somebody say, okay, that's right. And, and it probably won't be me. I probably won't be the one looking. Then we'll talk about how to do it in the coming weeks. So I'm asking you maybe not to even write anything down right now because I don't want you to decide what you're going to give in two minutes. That would be antithetical to what I think. I think you need to sit down with God and think about what you make, think about what you could make, think about what you spend, think about what you could cut spending, think about what your budget is, think about all the things the Lord has given you to steward and the things you want to do in your life and the impact you want to make, and then you need to sit down and say, okay, I think for this year, for 2011, I'm giving this much. And that will be the discipline of deciding and of pledging, and hopefully somebody in this group will actually keep you accountable so that when you put money back there, you can put an envelope and write your name on it or something or write a name inside or we'll figure something out so that you're not broadcast to the world what we're doing. But I think that the discipline of accountability is something that would help this group. Yeah. Would you mind if other people email you or talk to you about trying to decide because sometimes that's a hard thing to do? Yeah, and, we, and I, would, I would say some of the resources on our site that like we have a whole six podcasts on money and what to do with money and we have a whole bunch on, uh, from stewardship last year that talked about some of these issues, some of the practical issues of, of giving and how much to give and those kinds of things. I'm going to close like I usually do with this discussion. Some of you have heard it, some of you haven't. It's really difficult to decide what to give. In trying to decide what to give, you have to think of your whole life. You have to think of like what your life is going to be like when you meet the Lord. Like in the parable of the talents when he says, tell me what you did with the money I gave you. And the first one says, I did this and I doubled it. He says, good and faithful servant. The second one says, I did this and I doubled it. And he says, good and faithful servant. And the other one said, I didn't know what to do and I hid it. And you know that parable doesn't end well for him either. 
But there's still a formula somewhere in my mind. What am I supposed to give? Is it just 10%? I don't think so. I think it's the everything. It's how much can I get by using just for myself, just to make it in this life, and how much can I end up giving to you, O Lord, so that I could double, triple, quadruple everything you've given to me and use it for your kingdom. The example that I've used all the time is looking at the end of the movie Schindler's List. And the way that even though Oscar Schindler spent the entire part of World War II saving Jews from the concentration camps by buying their lives and saving 1,100 people by pretending they were working in his munitions factory when he was really just trying to keep them out of Auschwitz. At the end of his time, at the end of the war, when he realized he'd saved that many people, you could say that anybody would say, that is a good and faithful servant, anybody who would spend their money to save 1,100 people. And yet, by Schindler's own words, that wasn't enough. That isn't enough because by just cutting this expense or that expense, he could have saved more people. I think for us, at the end of our life, we're going to look back and everything's never going to have been enough of what we could have done for God's people. The problem for us, frankly, is how do we get that perspective today? How do you know what it's going to be like to meet your maker today? How do we get into our minds that you might not have another 40 years, you might have four? And I would say that's something we have to ask God's wisdom on and say, Lord, please teach me your ways. Please teach me your power. Please teach me to be strong. How is it that I can learn to live the way you want me to live and not be trapped by the way the world is asking me to live? How is it that I can hold out everything with my hand that even if I were to do great things, like save 1,100 people, that I would still be thinking, I could have done more than that. I could have done more than that. And have that perspective now instead of waiting until it's too late. Because at the end, it always seems like it's too late. We could have done more. And I think we'll always feel that way. And God knows that. He's gracious to us and merciful. So starting next week, I'm going to ask you to start returning those and bring them back. But I would ask this week, you spend some time just looking at them carefully and thinking. And even if the amount is whatever it is, that's what you're pledging. And that's fine. That's the first step in accountability and pledging and deciding what it is we're going to give. And we're going to take that money this year and do great things with it, whatever amount it is. Let's pray. Lord, I'm thankful to you for your example in this story. I'm thankful for you that you have preserved your scripture over all these years that we might just have a chance to study it and look at it in awe, in fear, wondering about the God that we serve. I thank you that the story doesn't make perfect sense to us that we serve a God who we're still always trying to understand, that as soon as we turn the page, there's a different aspect of you that we need to know about. And our minds struggle to try to fit you in, and that's what reminds me all the time, that you are God, and we are not. And that you're not a construction of our minds or our intent, but Lord, we're constantly trying to learn and worship you. So thank you, Lord, even for this story, even for the healthy fear that it brings back to us, even for the fear that we should have, yes, Lord, for you, Holy Spirit, in this room right now, speaking through us and dwelling in our place. Lord, thank you for everything you've given. And Holy Spirit, remind us that we are to hold everything to you. Pray this in your name. Amen.